0: shall come. According to Pew's religious landscape study, 70% of Americans call themselves Christian or around the 70% of Americans call themselves Christian. And that's a, that's a pretty great number. You know That's pretty great news. A vast majority of Americans claim to be Christian. If we, if we expand the scope of that study a little bit to not just include Americans, but to also include the entire world, Christians uh, are the largest religious group in the world. Even whenever you include atheists in that group, Christians are are the largest religious group in the world. Christians sort of make up the plurality of the religious landscape of the world. Christians make up about uh, 31% of of the religious landscape, and the second largest is the Muslim faith, the the faith of Islam, and they make up 24% of the religious landscape. Now, uh, some people may look at these numbers and be surprised that there are so many religious people in the world and that there are so many uh, Christians in, in the United States and around the world, but these numbers aren't really surprising. You know, I can understand at least why there are so many religious people in the world. It seems like just looking at the world based on intuition, it seems like the world was indeed designed. It seems like there is a designer behind all of this, so it's not surprising at all that there are so many people who are, who are religious. And it's not surprising at all that there are so many people who are Christians because Christians uh, are the, the recipients of great promises. God has promised us great things. And not only this, our God is a just God. He's a good God who loves us and cares for us. So who wouldn't want to live in eternity with that God? You know, in light of those promises that God has given us, I'm surprised that there aren't more people who who believe in the God of the Bible. These numbers, these statistics are great, but I believe that there is a different reality underneath those numbers. I believe that even though there are so many people who, who, who call themselves Christian, I believe that a lot of those people ultimately despise God. Now, some people may say, well, Reuben, how can you say that? That's pretty harsh language. How can you say these people who call themselves Christians despise God? Well, that's what we're going to spend our time this morning talking about and unpacking. We're going to talk about what it means to despise God and how we can avoid that attitude, that mentality of despising God. So we're going to spend some time talking about this because this is important for us also. You know, it's not only uh, the, the people on the outside of this building. It's not only the larger religious world that has this problem. Uh, we can fall into this trap also. So we're going to spend some time talking about this idea. And the way we're going to do that is we're going we're gonna to look to Scripture, uh the, the, the ancient uh, Israelites and Christians also had this problem of despising God. So we're going to look back to Scripture, look at some of the stories in the Old Testament, and talk a little bit about what it means to despise God. So let's actually, let's just talk about the story. Let's look at Israel's history. And, and when we do, when we look back at Israel's history, we see that God back then was a God of promises. I mean, even from the beginning, God was a God of of promises. You know, we were just just here a couple of weeks ago, we read Genesis chapter 12, where God makes these great promises to Abraham. God promises him, I'm going to turn you into a great nation. You know, Abraham already had a pretty decent-sized family, but God says, I'm going to turn this family who's dwelling in tents, I'm going to turn them into a great nation. God says, I'm going to give you this great land, eventually he calls it a land flowing with milk and honey, and you're going to dwell in this great land. And he tells Abraham, uh, through your family, through your seed, all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. These are some great promises that, that, that God makes towards Abraham. And it's not surprising why Abraham follows God. We can see the reason why. These are, these are amazing promises. When we move forward in history, uh, past Abraham, a number of generations past Abraham, We see that his family is in a different situation. Go ahead and open up your book to Exodus, Exodus chapter 1. In this context, we see that Abraham's family, they're in a different situation. Uh, From one vantage point, it seems like God is indeed keeping his promises. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 6, it says, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. So we, we see here God's promise. Uh, the, Abraham's family, they're no longer just a large family, sort of this nomadic family dwelling in tents. Now they're this large nation. As a matter of fact, they are a nation within a nation. So uh, we see here that God, from this vantage point, God is keeping his promises. God promised Abraham. I'm going to make your family great, and this is exactly what is happening. But from a different vantage point, it seems like God has forgotten Israel. It seems like God is is not keeping his promises. Let's pick up in verse eight. Uh, Exodus chapter one and verse eight. It says, Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh the storage cities Pithom and Ramses. Uh, But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously and they made their lives bitter with hard labor uh, and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in in the fields and all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. So from this different vantage point, it seems like God has forgotten his people. Yes, they are a great nation, but they're not in their own land yet. They're a great nation, but they're stuck in captivity in someone else's land. Where is God and what is he doing about this? Well, we see Israel's situation start to change a little bit once we move forward in history some more, where Moses enters the scene in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And when we start from reading from verse 7, we see that God has not forgotten his people. God remembers his promises, starting in verse 7 of Exodus chapter three, it says, the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, come now, I will send you to Pharaoh so that you will bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So we see here, God knows exactly what these people are going through. God sees their affliction and he's going to keep their promise. He is going to bring them out of Egypt, bring them into a land that he calls a land flowing with milk, and honey, and we know how this story goes. We know the way that the Lord does this. There are, uh, especially if you, you know, you remember Bible drill, there are these 10 plagues that God sends uh, on Egypt and, and God says, Pharaoh, let my people go. And he says, what? He says, no, that's exactly right. No, we're not, I'm not gonna do that. And Pharaoh, what, what Pharaoh doesn't understand is he doesn't understand how important this is to God. And God makes that clear to him In Exodus chapter 4, moving forward one more chapter. Exodus chapter 4, starting at verse 22. It says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold... I will kill your son, your firstborn. So this is a big issue for God. God says, Israel is my son. Israel is my firstborn. I want you to let him go. But Pharaoh doesn't do that. Pharaoh doesn't take God seriously. And ultimately, it does take the death of Pharaoh's son for him to let Israel go. But he does eventually let Israel go. And it's through God's amazing power. It's through God's amazing mercy that he delivers his people from this bondage. And this is important for the Israelites to remember uh, Moses makes this clear in Exodus chapter 13. Moses says, this is something you need to remember. You need to remember uh, where you came from, and you need to remember what God has done for you. Exodus chapter 13, in verse 3, it says, Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. So here we see this is important for them to Remember. And in chapter 14, we see the Israelites actually leaving Egypt. So in chapter 14, in verse 8, it says, The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Now, this word is translated a variety of ways. This version says boldly. Uh, Other versions may say they, they left Egypt defiantly. Uh, other versions, or maybe it's in your cross-reference, it may say they left Egypt with the high hand. The idea behind this idea of boldly or defiantly or with a high hand, it's, it's that, you know, they're not sorry. <laughs> they are not ashamed to be leaving slavery. They are, they're happy to go. They are ready. And we understand that, right? This is, that's not confusing. Man, why do they not want to be in slavery? We understand what's going on there. Um, so they're ready to go, and, and they leave. After they leave Egypt, Israel is in the wilderness, and in the wilderness, they have some ups, and they have some downs. I mean, you guys remember the, the instance of the golden calf, so that was one of the instances where they were sort of down. But uh, once you get to the book of Numbers, we see Israel's actually doing pretty well. Once we get to the book of Numbers, we see that Israel is actually following God. God has laid out a plan. God is preparing them uh, for for, for land and the life. He's preparing them to live in his presence. And we talked about it in a a previous lesson. If we're going to live in God's presence, that means we have to live a certain way. So God is preparing them for that, and they're actually following God's commands. Let's go over to the book of Numbers, and we can see this. The book of Numbers, we're going to just look at a couple of instances. Numbers chapter 1. First one in verse 54, it says, Thus the sons of Israel did according to all which the, which the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. We see similar language in chapter 2 in verse 34. We're going to move quickly here. It says, Thus the sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they camped by their standards, and so they set out everyone by his family according to his father's household. Chapter 9, moving on to chapter 9 and verse 5, we see again similar language uh, in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 9 and verse 5, it says, so they observed the Passover in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did. So these early chapters in the book of Numbers, Israel's doing pretty good. They're following God. They're doing what God wanted him to do. As a matter of fact, they, even, they literally followed God, not just in a, in a figurative sense, but literally they were following God. We see this in, in chapter 9, just jumping down to verse 18. Jumping down to verse 18, it says, at the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the clouds settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even if the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then, to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted up in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days, a month, a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained at camp and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. So these people are literally following God. You know, if God settles on the temple, well, you know what? They make camp. And even if God stays there for years... They stayed with God, and when God lifts up from the temple, well, they set out and follow God. So these verses emphasize the fact that Israel is following God no matter what. But we know Israel's history, and we know that does not continue. If we continue reading through the book of Numbers, we see that this honeymoon phase, it doesn't land, or it doesn't last After about two years of being in the wilderness, Israel is finally ready to enter the land. So what do they do? Well, they send out these 12 spies, and they say, well, you guys, we want you to go into the land and tell us about the land. We want you to tell us about the people. We want you to tell us about the things that are there. Tell us about the land. And when the spies go out and return uh, well, two spies give positive reports, right? Joshua and Caleb, they return with this positive report. They say, well, you know what, guys? We can do this. Let's go do it. You know, we can take this land. We are ready. But the other 10 spies, they're like, it's not going to happen, right? Those guys are big. They're kind of swole. They're going to step on us. <laughs> like, it is just not going to happen. So, so ultimately, the Israelites follow who? They don't follow Joshua and Caleb. Instead... They follow or they listen to the other 10 spies, and they actually want to return to Egypt. We see this in Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, starting in verse 1, we sort of see the attitude of the Israelites after they've received this report from the 12 spies, or the 10 spies, really. It says, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder, so would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. So in this verse, we see that God... Well, you know, from the story that we, from the the path that we've been trailing through Scripture, that we've been walking through Scripture, we see that God has brought his people out of Egypt. God has brought his people out of captivity, out of bondage, out of a bondage that they couldn't bring themselves out of. They relied on God's strength, but now they're saying, well, we need to go back. You know, we're not going to take this land that God has promised us. We need to go back to that slavery in Egypt, to the bondage in Egypt. And God is, is not happy with this at all. As a matter of fact, God talks about it down in verse 11. Numbers chapter 14 and verse 11. It says, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me and how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I performed in their midst? I will spite them with pestilence and dispossess them. I will make you, into a, uh, make you Moses into a nation greater, greater, excuse me, and mightier than So God's saying, look at everything I've done for them. Brought them out of the land of Egypt, brought them out of slavery, and now look at how they're reacting. And what does God say they've done to him? It says, why have they spurned me? That's what my translation says. But I actually like the ESV a little bit better. The ESV says, why has this people despised me? Why has this people despised God? And that's the idea. That's essentially what it means. That's at least one of the things that it means to despise God. It means, you know, God has done all this great stuff, delivered us, but we are looking back, just like the Israelites. The Israelites, God had delivered them from slavery, but they're looking back towards that slavery and wanting to go back. That's essentially what it means. But let's unpack this concept of, of despising the Lord just a little bit more because we see this language continue to be used in the book of Numbers. So let's go over to one chapter Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15 and verse 27, and there's a, in this context, there's sort of a comparison with the person who sins uh, unintentionally versus the person who sins with, with some intent. So we'll, let's start. Verse 27, it says, "'Also if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven.'" You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally for him who is a native and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment that the people should be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. So we see these two people. One who sins unintentionally, and then one who sins defiantly. And that's that word that we saw before, where this person is sinning with a high hand. This person is not apologetic. He's not sorry in any way. As a matter of fact, he's proud of what he's doing. And that's the idea there of sinning with a high hand. And God tells us that the person who sins with a high hand, he tells us that this person despises the word of the Lord. In other words, this person despises God. So here, we see another aspect of what it means to despise God. It means we, we sin with a high hand, not apologetic. We're doing it on purpose. We're glad that we're doing it. Well, from this point on, from this point on, from Numbers 15 forward, we start to see this happen. We start to see people who are sinning with a high hand, who are sinning intentionally or without remorse whatsoever. As a matter of fact, we see this in Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16, we see this rebellion that goes on, this rebellion against Moses and God. And this is the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and On. And in this story, the people who are rebelling, they don't want to follow Moses anymore. As a matter of fact, uh, they don't want to be in the wilderness anymore. They just want to go back to Egypt, and they want to appoint a new leader who will take them back to Egypt. We see this in Numbers chapter 16 down in verse 12. Numbers chapter 16, down in verse 12, it says, Then Moses sent a summons to Datham and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, but they said, We will not come up. Is it not enough that you have brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey? Let me stop there. Do you see what they just did there? That's that promise language. That's the promise. God said, I'm gonna bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. These guys, they're looking back towards Egypt and saying, that's the land flowing with milk and honey. So they say, you have brought us out of this land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but would you also lord it over us? Indeed, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? Are you saying, or you think we're blind? We will not come up. So here from these verses, we see that these people, they just—they want to go back to to Egypt. They are looking back towards Egypt. And we're told later on that they're doing this with a high hand because we're told that these people despise God. As a matter of fact, we see that in Numbers chapter uh, 16 down in verse 28. So dropping down to verse 28, uh, this is when Moses is It's testing the people to prove that he is from God. It says, Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up all with all of that is theirs... And their descendants, or, and they descend, excuse me, alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. That's that same word we've been talking about. These men have despised God. So what we see about these men is, is they are sinning here with a high hand. Just like Israel left Egypt with a high hand, they left Egypt boldly, without remorse, without sorrow. These men are wanting to go back to Egypt boldly, without remorse, and without sorrow. And that's essentially what it means to despise God. It means that we are looking back to the world that Jesus or that God saved us from and wanting to go back, and we're doing that with a high hand. So what are some lessons for us? What are some lessons for, for, for us in this? How do we avoid this mentality of despising God? How do we avoid that? Well, I've got three points for you. Now. I know some of you are saying, Reuben, you've already gone 20 minutes. What do you mean you have three points for us? Uh, well, these are going to be short points. The, the way I sort of structured this lesson is different from the way I usually do. I started with a sort of, to, I wanted to bring you guys into the, 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 my thought world of, 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 of this story, and then we're going to talk shortly here about three points. So how do we avoid this attitude? Well, first of all, we have to remember where we came from. We have to remember our slavery. Remember that we came from a life of slavery. Like the Israelites, we were once in bondage. Sin owned us because all have sinned and turned short from the glory of God. There was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. We were stuck in that bondage of sin. So that's number one. If we're gonna avoid this this attitude of, of despising God, if we're gonna avoid this mentality, we have to make sure that we remember where we came from, that we remember the slavery that we were in. Second, we also have to remember our deliverance. Like the Israelites, God saved us. We are his children. Like the Israelites were called his children back then, God has saved us from a slavery of sin and death. And since he saved us, we have a journey that we're on. We are on the journey just like Israel was. We are on the journey towards the promised land, towards a life, uh, an eternal life with God. And that journey's not always easy, is it? Sometimes we have trouble, sometimes we have trials, sometimes we have tribulations. It's not always easy, but our God is a God of promise. So the journey may not always be easy, but the journey is indeed worth it. So if we're going to avoid this attitude of despising God, we need to remember where we came from. We need to remember our deliverance, but also we need to make sure that we don't look back. You know, at times this is easy. At times, uh, our Christian walk is super easy, where we are extremely zealous. All we want to do is serve God in those times. But there are other times where it's not so easy. There are other times where we don't really want to serve the Lord. We don't really want to follow his rules. Instead, we look at the world and we look at uh, the the place from which we came, and we say, man, they're the ones having all the funds. Man, look at my friends over there. They could do whatever they want. They could watch whatever movies they want. They could go visit whatever websites they want. They could could drink as much as they want. They're the ones having all the fun. And we look back and we say, man, that is the land flowing with milk and honey. But it's not. God has told us that we are on the path. We are on a journey to the promised land. And whenever we look back and we say those things, what we're really doing is we're despising God. We're despising God because we're saying, I don't trust what you say. You say that that land over there is the land flowing in milk and honey, but whenever I look back, I see that that land is the one flowing with milk and honey. If we're going to avoid this attitude, this mentality of despising God, we've got to make sure that we do not look back because the goal of our journey is the most important thing in our lives, that promised land. You know as I said earlier, there are many Christians in this world. It's the largest religious group in the world, and despite of that, there are many who, who despise God, because even though they say they are Christians, they are living in Egypt. You know, guys, we need to make sure that we are not living. In Egypt. But maybe there's someone here this morning who has been living in Egypt. Maybe there's someone here this morning who has been, who has been living in, in that land of slavery from which God has saved them, and you want to come back to the Lord because you know ultimately that's going to be the journey that is worth it. Well, if you'd like to come back to the Lord, we can help you with that. Or maybe there's someone else here who would like to start their journey to the promised land. Well, we can help you with that also. Whatever you need, you can come now as we stand and as we sing.